Hello, 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 hello from Indianapolis, Naptown, site of the Circle 2016 City. NCAA Women's Final Four, Tuesday night. We are here for a KG Fifth World Wildcat and Dot podcast, getting ready to watch the Connecticut Huskies go for their 11th NCAA championship versus the upstart Syracuse Orange going for their first NCAA championship. Amazing. We'll touch on that in a few, especially considering a couple a couple of things. One, Syracuse is coached by a black man. That's Two, all four head coaches in the women's final four were, were men. So, keep those uh, thoughts in mind. Brothers, how are you? Well, the fact that we made it here safely today, doing real good. Doc? I'm doing well. Excited to be with the fellas again. My second trip to uh, Women's Final Four. So uh, excited to be in the house. Division One, Two, II, and Three are here. But as you said, we're here for the big game. Doc. Well, let's let's. Do you want to run the show right now? You, you're fired up there. You kind of yeah. Said, I'm, I've been fired up. You Y'all heard me all this in, morning in the folks. airport on the plane. Uh, actually, it started last night during the game. I came across an article that uh, was brought to my attention. Um, it has a f- professor of mine that's quoted in the article in terms of Dr. Billy Hawkins at the University of Georgia. Um, he's the author of the book. The New Plantation that looks at the current framework of NCAA. And so if you've heard us talk about it, you've heard articles for a while that has talked about this refrain. You just had the recent book that came out um, called Indentured that looks at the framework of NCAA. And so this article by Patrick Harubi, uh, which is out of the vice sports.com vice sports.com and uh, it's actually at sports.vice.com but it's called vice sports um, and you have Patrick who's actually a professor at Georgetown University and he contributes also to the Washingtonian magazine and other work that he does and obviously for Vice Sports, where he put this article. And in its title, Four Years of Student-Athlete, The Racial Injustice of Big-Time College Sports, and it kind of rang true to me when he starts with Four Years of Athlete, which reminds me of the refrain, the movie that uh, came out uh, about a year or so ago called Twelve Years a Slave that really caught the imagination of the nation. When you heard the horrific story of the individual that was born a freedman that is actually sold into slavery, although he was a freedman, and it took him 12 years to um, be released of being enslaved. But to take you to this article, the first thing I'll do is I'll read the intro. The one thing that I really give credit to Patrick in regards to this article, he does a great job of not only telling his framework of what he sees, but he brings a cadre of academic professors together to tell why um, that the, as he titled it, that the racial injustice 
of big time college sports. He also ties in many of the articles uh, that people have written over the last couple of years about this framework, uh, which, as you can tell from my voice, is disturbing. But before I get into a couple of things that I thought were poignant, that I think our listeners will definitely want to hear or resonate, but obviously... I think it's important for you to go and check out this article and read it for yourself. Do have some time because it is pretty long read. It's pretty intensive. As I said, it covers a lot of material, and he does a great job of doing it. And he adds some new material that I think is framing. But he opens up by talking to a married couple that are professors at Michigan State. So let me open it up by actually reading this opening couple of paragraphs so you can really get into the framing of this story. Before Robert and Amy McCormick could see the racial injustices at the heart of big-time college sports, they had to wake up, literally. It was the summer of 2002 and the McCormicks, a married pair of professors at Michigan State University, were living in an East Lansing neighborhood located between a block of students' housing and the school's athletic department. Every morning around 5.30 a.m., Michigan State athletes would ride their bicycles past the McCormick's house on their way to practice. Among them was Charles Rogers, one of the best college football players in the country. And I'm sure fans of college football and professional football remember Charles Rogers. But he goes on to include that Charles Rogers, Charles Rogers, I should say, a tall, speedy wide receiver whom professional scouts were likening to the National Football League star Randy Moss at the time. Quote, one morning Robert saw Rogers whizzing by, his six foot three frame dwarfing a rickety bike that barely seemed to road worthy. He's a first round NFL draft choice, thought the sports and labor law professor who attended Michigan State himself and taught a sports law class at the university since 1984. Next year he'll be making millions, but now he's making nothing. That's the opening framework. So it goes on to really look at this imbalance. How in a place like America, a place that I think is a great country, how could you have this mind frame in a country that believes not only in democratic value, but also in terms of capitalism. And this is me adding on to my framing of this story. How could this happen here? How could this happen in this place that we call home? That the fact that you could have a group of individuals who are not paid for their labor, and they hide it under the auspices of the term that was coined in basically in 1955 through a litigation when a player lost his life on the football field and his wife sought to sue the university. She lost and part of the reason she lost was the fact uh, that they, Walter Byers I should say, actually coined the term student-athlete. So that was disturbing enough for me, as you can imagine. And I would like to say the person's name because I think it's important. Ray Dennison. Uh, 
He died September 26, 1955. Obviously, Ray Dennison playing at Fort Lewis A&M was not an African-American. Um, but he lost his life, and I think it's important that you look at this. Ray Dennison died on the date in 1955 after a fatal football injury as a member of the Fort Lewis A&M team. In courts, his widow, Billy Dennison, was unsuccessful in her lawsuit that helped define NCAA's relationship with college athletes based on the court's ruling of the term student-athlete. So a lot of this is cloaked in this term student-athlete, and at the time they wanted to say it was about amateurism, that you had to have this free will of amateurism, and, and amateurism was so important to the college game, they coined this term student-athletes, which means that they could not be employed and part of university, which means the university couldn't get sued for injuries, and therefore later as the sport has morphed into a billion-dollar industry, they still use this terminology to frame the rationale that you cannot pay these athletes. Well, where this becomes more draconian is from the framework now, as you know that many of the athletes in the sports that are most financially well with all are the sport of football and men's basketball. And as you know now, and he put, points this out eloquently in the article with percentages so you can understand the percentage of black players, and he looks at percentage of black players on football and basketball with the SEC, 57%, for basketball, 66%, Big Ten, uh, the second least is in football is at 41%, basketball at 51%, and I'm rounding these numbers off. He goes into the 10th percentage. Pac-12, which is the lowest um, at 37.5% for African-American players in football, 49% of basketball players. ACC, 51% in football, which is the second highest behind the SEC. You're talking about the South, essentially. ACC has moved and people are complaining about them taking the Big East, so I'm talking about the hard – of the ACC. And in basketball, that's 57%. And you saw that a lot when you watched the North Carolina men's championship game last night, which obviously was a thriller. But we're going into a little more poignant area, and we'll get a chance to talk about that thriller and argue whether that was the greatest game played at the collegiate level. Then you have the Big 12, which is an extension of the South moving into the Midwest, obviously, uh, depending on what schools you're looking at. The Big 12... 50% black football uh, are African-American playing football, I should say. And in basketball, you have 60%. So we understand now that you're talking about this large component at a minimum in most sports, averaging about 50%, as you see with a lot of these leagues in football and more in, obviously, basketball, are earning a great deal of money. Let me give you some figures because, you know, as the doctoral and sports professor, I think it would not be right if I get into some dialogue like this. And I didn't as you were the data, the data doctor. Thank you. And I didn't share these numbers. I think I wouldn't be doing your service. There was a quote in here that talks about just how significant this is. 
and I just gave you a percentage of the numbers. You know about how much money is made in basketball, football, uh, through the tournament that you talked about. But look on the other side of the battle, where this money is moving from. It's moving out of the pockets of the work of African, the largely African-American population that's playing sports and moving into a subset of Europeans, uh, particularly mostly male. So you have since African-Americans make up about 53%, this is a quote, of football and basketball players put together. That means they're losing about $2.2 billion each and every year. Think about that, people. How is that right? And how can we all be a part of this system that doesn't have a, pro- a problem? But, but Doc, they get, the free, they get scholarships, Doc. They get scholarships. Right. That's what that guy said this morning. Yeah, I, mean, I actually, and y'all heard me go off on him. They don't tell me that. First of all, they don't get anything. They earn everything that comes their way. And then I would add into it, he talked about the fact that they earn a degree. And we have already talked about the travails, and he goes in this too, is the fact that he looks at the percentage of individuals not earning degrees and even the ones that are earning degrees. And Dr. Hawkins, Billy Hawkins at the University of Georgia, talks in a little more direct term talking about the fact that they have this clustering where they cluster these athletes and it's really significant and big uh, in ACC. They actually had a study that looked at that and they had one where it had like 82% or 80 plus percent of African American athletes were basically within two majors in the whole conference among three or four schools. Ridiculous. But again, I want to make sure that we point out this fact that 53%, $2.2 billion is transferred. And then we're talking about over a lifetime. We're talking about every year. You're talking about some communities that are depressed around this country that are not doing well. Could you imagine what could happen to some of these cities? And how that money would actually become functionally better for school systems that are deprived of this money. And how this actually would make America even better. Talking about making America great again. <laughs> Move transfer some of this $2 billion into individuals that need it. Doc, what are you... What are you suggesting needs to be done? What, do you want, what would you like to see happen? I think you open up the market. I essentially, I would say... let's pull the cloak off of this and let's do a CBA collective bargaining agreement and let's open it up and allow individuals that make the bulk of the money at the power five schools I'm talking about in basketball. You might look at the schools that have the red line. We talked about the red line, uh, which is a study that says that over 85% or nearly 85% of the schools that spend And this study was about down done in 2007. So this number is, Moved up, but at the time, if they had twenty billion dollars, twenty million dollars as a conference, or like two point two billion dollars, it crept up over the next three years when they look at it. So it went two point two to two point four, two point seven was the red line, and those teams that had those budgets, either overall or as a basketball operation budget, won eighty five percent of the time. So those schools that had that type of budget and committing and making that money, I believe. 
the Power Five conferences and those in basketball that are over that two plus million dollar threshold that has climbed to probably three or four now, um, that they have a collective bargaining agreement and they iron it out and play these. It's not going to take away from your excitement of the game and let the individuals that um, play the game have an opportunity to earn that money. So one other thing I like to read to kind of hone in on the financial component of this. In 2011, this is a quote out of the article. In 2011, the National College Players Association, a college athlete advocacy group, and Drexel University professor Ellen Starkowski, and I met Starkowski and uh, trying to work with her on a couple of projects. She's a very brilliant lady. Published a study estimating that if FBS football and basketball players received the same percentage of industry revenues as the professional counterparts, the average football player would be worth $121,000.48. And you're talking about a scholarship uh, that is nowhere near that money. And as is admitted, and we know that only 1% of these athletes will go on to play pros, which means they make money in something else. Very few of them will land a job coming out that would give them $121,000. So this is money that they could put in a savings account, bond account, uh, taking some class. They could open up businesses, again, that would help them, help their family, help the community. Uh, and this is per season. So you play four years, you're talking about a half a million dollars nearly that you're asking people to give up. And there's not anyone in their right mind uh, that would make that type of money and would freely give it away, uh, talking about their trading in for education. I'd rather you charge me for the education and give me the money. I would have a net plus. And that the average basketball player would be worth 200, listen to this, the average basketball player would be worth $265,027. It's a quarter of a, over a quarter of a million dollars. That you're saying it's fine for these players to leave on the table. For the very best athletes at the biggest, most lucrative college programs, those numbers could even be higher. The average University of Texas football player would be worth a half a million dollars, exactly $514 a season. While the average Duke University. Yeah, $514,000. While the average Duke University basketball player would be worth a million. Now, with that incentive, Doc, and I'm going to let you gather, keep rolling along there, what would be the incentive of either staying or making a move forward into the rank, professional ranks? Once you get to that point, and we all know everybody's is looking I at it. I think you would have much more of a incentive to stay because now you have a financial financial well-being you're in a position and you can hone your skills so i'm not sure you would have that many people move on because they're making a significant amount of money off their net worth and when time comes and they can move to the next level so you really do what basketball and football are you become a minor league where you can financially uh, do for yourself and your family and the point is is now they have a minor league but the minor league doesn't cost them anything any real money because That's they true. don't have to play what I see as the employees. Obviously they use the term student athlete. I say college athlete. 
because they have had the loss system thus far go in their favor in terms of looking at. I pointed out before in this article talks about this. You talk about transference of wealth. Not only is it going to athletic directors, which he brings in to a percentage and breaks down, which really shows you the horrific numbers of how this transfer of wealth is going uh, to this small group, which is also quite sad when you look at um, the fact that the FBS schools, university presidents, percentage of European-American or white university presidents, 89.8%. Athletic directors, 86.7%. Head football coaches, 87.5%. Assistant football coaches, 67.2%. Conference commissioners, 100%. Faculty athletic representatives, 89.9%. Full-time faculty, 75.2%. A wider European-American. That That is just outrageous when you talk about the wealth transfer. That that $2. billion, that's where it's going. So people are literally getting rich off the back of these kids with a large percentage of them being African-American and black. Then you look at the NCA. You think, well, maybe it's a little better. At least in the athletics, they play so they can come up. They can work in these organizations. They can work for the NCA, right? They can't work for the universe, but they can work for the universe. Not so fast, my friend. Uh, NCA senior executives, 76.5%. NCA director, 81.9%. NCA administrator, 79.8%. Division one associate athletic director, 87.2%. Division one assistant athletic director, 88.1%. Division one men's head basketball coach, so yeah, they can play the sport, they can coach, right? No, 86.8%. Division one athletic administrator, 84.6%. So again, the numbers don't lie. You know, men lie, women lie. You might even think I lie, but these numbers don't lie. They're telling you the story. I'm giving you the data to, and the numeric values, and if you're real about the situation, you can't argue with that. It's in it's just it's devastating in terms of what you're doing in this transfer of wealth and how it's really poisoning the community. Well, we're not finished with that. It gets worse, uh, listeners. It gets worse, which is sad. Not only do you have that great bill of wealth going over to the coaches, administrators, and NCA, you also have scholarships that are given to these sports, such as cross-country, field hockey, golf, ice hockey, lacrosse, rowing, soccer, softball, swimming, tennis, volleyball. And you don't have a large percentage of African-Americans playing that. In fact, let me give you the percentage as quoted in this article that are white, European-American athletes playing. Cross-country, 72.9. Field hockey, 77.4. Golf, 65.9. Ice hockey, 62.3. Lacrosse, 85.6. Rowing, 75.4. Soccer, 66.1. Softball, 71.6. Swimming, 77.3. Tennis, 43.2. Volleyball, 67.6. So this money and this transfer of wealth are going to... And these are individuals that play these sports. They train very early. 
And so they tend to be in families that are pretty affluent, at least middle class. These are not, for the most part, what we would refer to in this country as poor kids or poor families. So these are the folks that really don't need the money, but they get the opportunity. And to their credit, they work hard so they earn a scholarship. So we're not saying that they don't have the opportunity to earn a scholarship. They earn that. But the fact the money that goes to them, they didn't earn. Lacrosse does not make money. Swimming does not make money. Not at the money they were talking about for football and basketball. And that's the transfer of wealth that is going on. It's $2.2 billion. I will say it again. 53% of the population that are playing these two sports are transferring this wealth of $2.2 billion. That's not over a lifetime, people. That is a year of money that is transferring. That is... A shame, and we should all be ashamed of ourselves for allowing this system to take place. And all we can do is cheer and get the television ratings and going. We need to speak out on this. We need to tell the NCA they're wrong. We need to tell the administrators they are wrong, and they need to write this. They need to do what's right in this country in terms of people that work hard should have the ability to earn revenue for working hard. And so I'll close on the last part of here. That they put in again. I encourage you to read this article for yourself. So I'm not just summarizing and putting a slant that you would, that you think is out there. I've retweeted this, uh, but Bill Morrow had a quote that he made that uh, hit home. It's a tough one. March Madness really is a stirring reminder of what America was founded on, making tons of money off the labor of unpaid black people. And that's essentially what's going on. And that's why you have the term plantation. That's why you have the term um, $40 million slaves for professional players. But obviously, unfortunately, that doesn't even happen at the college level. You also have the book recently we talked about indentured. Um, a coin, a term that I use is athletic sharecropping. But that's why you have these poignant terms that are coming out. Because that's what it refers to in this off. And this article goes into the term of apartheid of what we've seen in South Africa. That's how poisonous this is. There's one part that I think is important to look at as we, I close out on my component of what I'm talking about here. Quote here that says, Numbers like those caught the attention of Tatish Nida, a University of Massachusetts political science professor who researched focused on ethnic politics. He recently wrote a story that we talked about on our podcast. Um, so did a 2014 soliloquy for the ESPN radio host, Colin Cowherd, who caught flat some civil rights groups after making arguable coded statements about pay for play. Quote, I don't think pay all college athletes is great. Not every college is loaded and most 19 year olds are going to spend it. And let's be honest, they're going to spend it on weed and kicks. End quote, Cowherd said. On air. And spare me, he said, and spare me. They'll be extorted thing. Listen, 90% of these college guys are going to spend it on tats, weed, kicks, Xboxes, beer, and swing. They are, get over it, as he said, end quote. Hopefully our listeners are not at that level. But again, I said it, heard it in the airport. And I talked about it then, and I'm calling out anybody that says it now. I, I'm, I don't have the patience anymore. 
getting older. This is getting more ridiculous. And we have to confront these. Nader knew from his previous study that underlying racial animus helped shape whites' attitude towards health care, welfare, and criminal justice. So welfare, as many people hate, and I definitely understand that. But it's intriguing to me that welfare that you see in terms of subsidies going from wealth of white individuals to blacks, people, or Hispanics, or poor people, people have a problem with. But when wealth is transferred from black athletes and college athletics to whites, as I just gave you the numbers, whether that is at the NCA or whether that is professionals in college athletics or whether that is even the athletes themselves, you've seen the numbers. You can't run from the numbers. We found out, in short, the more resentment a white person feels towards African Americans, the more likely they are to oppose Public policies they perceive as benefiting blacks. That is sad. But quote, he says, say you ask the question about building a wall between the U.S. and Mexico, end quote. Nada says, quote, rather than think about how much that will cost or how ridiculous the idea is, you just think about your attitude towards undocumented immigrants and Mexicans. And that influences how you think about building a wall, end quote. Do white's attitude toward amateurism work the same way is a question that this author asks. And he ends with stating this. Nader's caution that his research is preliminary work. Not quite ready for publish. But it tells you a great deal in terms of that. Lastly, a week ago, he spoke to students and faculty at the University of Virginia. School of Law, his graduate alma mater. This is a quote from the article. When college's sports came up, he noted, he noted that most NCAA-level women's cross-country teams are made up of white runners. He then asked listeners to participate in a thought exercise. Imagine, he said, if those teams bought in millions of dollars. Then imagine if the money mostly went to well-paid black administrators and to black athletes competing in non-revenue sports. Would that situation be tolerated? Let alone tolerated for decades. Quote. The reaction was largely silenced. End quote. He says. And I'm telling our listeners. It's time to open your mouth. It's time no longer to be silenced. We know this is wrong. And you can't just afford to be comfortable. It is time to speak out on the egregious acts of the NCA and the way they are malfeasance in terms of treating college athletes, particular college athletes of color in the sport of football and men's basketball. And I'll turn it over. How can folks find you on the Internet, sir? They can find me in terms of my website, thg-agency.com. They can also find me in the social media platforms of Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. That is Dr. Kenyatta Cavill, D-R-K-E-N-Y-A-T-T-A-C-A-V-I-L, D-R-K-E-N-Y-A-T-T-A-C-A-V-I-L. I have the ability um, to come across a lot of these articles, so I tend to retweet them. Get them out there in the field so people will at least be educated in terms of how they see and think about things. That's where I come across. You can also not only hear 
my thoughts on different issues like this on this particular podcast, as well as my radio show that I host, Dr. Cavill's Inside the HBC Sports Lab, every Tuesday from 6 to 7, and we will have a show today. Um, my co-hosts are in the studio, and they will be delivering such information. And so um, you can catch that live Central Time, 6 to 7, every Tuesday at www.k2htv.com. If you want to go to your on your phone, pull up your tuning app, you can catch it at K2H, and it's at KKBQ 92.9 uh, FM HD2. If you can't catch it live, which I definitely understand people's schedule, you can go catch the podcast at SoundCloud, Dr. Cavill's Inside the HBC Sports Lab. And that particular show is geared to um, HBCUs in their athletic program. All right. Um, thank you very much, sir. A lot of information right there, and, and I agree with it. I'm, I'm fed up with the uh, term student athlete, their players, and or, or employees, as what Doc, and I think I speak for myself, I re- refer to them as. But let's touch on, I want to work backward. I want to, we'll get back to the Final Four in just a moment. Monday afternoon, the uh, Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame announced the uh, class of 2016. And, we ha- and the city of Houston has uh, a few connections little f- in the uh, class of 2016. Yep. Just name all 10 of them. Yeah. Uh, this year's class includes NBA referee Daryl Garrison, Allen Iverson, Tom Izzo, Michigan State head coach, John McClendon, the first African-American coach in the professional league. Doc can, can uh, touch on more about Coach McClendon's impact on and off the court. Uh, three-time NBA Finals MVP Shaquille O'Neal. Four-time WNBA champion Cheryl Swoops, and then the distinguished committees focused on uh, four other people, directly elected members, who include Zelmo Beatty from the Veterans Committee, Yao Ming from the International Committee, Cumberland Posey from the Early African American Pioneers Committee, and Jerry Reinsdorf from the Contributor Committee. So you got Yao Ming and Swoops and Zelmo Beatty. So, uh, unless about, about time with Zelmo Beatty and the fact Coach McClendon with yes, about yeah. time. And he, he had been As in a coach, he was a he, contributor, which right. was insulting in some ways. So, and just real quick here for those folks saying early African American Pioneers Committee, Cumberland Posey, who was that? I'll tell you, Posey was. <laughs> A uh, multi-sport athlete recognized as the greatest African-American basketball player of his time, playing from the early 1900s to the mid-1920s. Black After leading Duquesne University and scoring for three seasons, he created, managed, and played for the legendary, as Dr. said, Big Five. His team was the most dominant of the Black Five's era, winning four straight colored basketball world championships. Upon retiring from basketball, Posey switched his focus to baseball, 
where he excelled for 35 years as a player and businessman. And in fact, Posey was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2006. So that's think about that. Posey. Two yes. Hall of Fame. Uh-huh. Uh, we've had some recent athletes that were two sports stars, but this guy is actually in the Hall of Fame. And, I, and that's amazing. Cheryl Swoops, I can go to my uh, HoustonRoundBallReview.com, www.HoustonRoundBallReview.com. Did a blog post with comments from William H. Stickney Jr. Uh, gave me his thoughts on Cheryl Swoops. Stick covered her when she was at Texas Tech. And, of course, he covered her when she played for the uh, Houston Comets. So you can go to, to uh, my blog and read that, and I'll just... Give you one little uh, comment from Stick, who was a, one of my mentors, and I still talk to as, as much as possible. The last quote from him was, Congratulations to one of the greatest competitors and best people I encountered during my 35-year career as a sports writer. That's saying a lot for Stick. Yes. Because he's witnessed a lot of college ball players. Yes. Yeah. Two things I want to touch on. One, I want to talk about Coach McClendon a little bit more in depth. But uh, Yao Ming has received a lot of flack from a lot of different folks. Why is Yao Ming in the, in the uh, class of 2016? Why is he in the Hall of Fame? Come on, people. Notice what he is. He was inducted as part of the International Committee. Because this is his second which induction. Which basically means Yao got... Yao is in because he opened the NBA in China hand in hand. He opened the NBA to China, opened China to the NBA. <laughs> Global ambassador. Yeah. Billions of people, of Chinese people, vote for NBA All-Star. And billions of dollars. So that's why Yao Ming is, Commercialism. is in the Hall of Fame. Changed the mindset. Yeah, he opened the door. And I think... As we talk about pioneers, and we'll go into John McClendon talking about the pioneer framework and the reason why we're frustrated that he was not into a coach now is he did it both ways. Not only as a pioneer, but also as a coach in terms of what he could do, redefining the game and things of the nature. Well, when you look at Yao Ming, the pioneer, what he did in terms of opening the game, to a broader perspective of the world, opening it to a new market um, means something. You see that in terms of folks that took the game overseas and opened it up to various markets. So I think it's significant and it says a lot. So uh, it's surprising to me that some people are questioning y'all. I mean, that they don't they don't look beyond just what he did on the court. And even if you look at the record, and let me he just, was really solid yes. on the court. Now, he, right. was, he was an eight-time All-Star, yes. five-time All-NBA, uh, and, and now getting into the influence of the All-Star voting, he broke the record for most All-Star all votes with a certain dude last name Jordan used to have. <laughs> so uh, those are reasons why Yao Ming is now in the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. And I just want to read you a little bit from the bio that the Hall put out for Coach McClendon, and then Doc wants you to add to this. Mm-hmm. Coach was, McClendon was the first coach to win three consecutive national championships, leading Tennessee State 
First ever. First Correct. ever. Yes. Because many people look at the years of UCLA, the greatness they had. But the first one to do it. Leading Tennessee State to NAI National Championships in 1957, 58, and 59. He compiled a collegiate coaching record of 522 wins, 165 losses, and was named Coach of the Year in 1958. He was the first African-American coach to accomplish many feats, including winning a national tournament in 1954, winning a national championship in 57, and winning a Nas- an AAU national championship in 1961. He was, was the first African-American coach to coach any pro league, which is the ABL. He was already, as we touched on a few minutes ago, already enshrined in the Hall of Fame as a contributor. He will now also be enshrined as a coach. Doc, as a historian of HBCUs, have at it. Certainly. Um, John Clendon, one of the first things I think is important is that he was tied to the father, the founder of this game, Dr. Naismith, James Naismith. Some folks don't know. Right. And so I think that is one of the first things that you have to put on the paper is the fact that he actually was taught the game, Uh, was one of the few African-Americans that had that type of relationship uh, with John. And it was his father that actually told, as the story would go, is told John McClendon to go to James Nate Smith and told him, tell him that you will train me and as any professor would do and say why do you believe that is the case and John unbeknownst to him at the time he said my father told me and credit to somebody of Dr. James Nate Smith character in what we now see legendary status his response was you're correct your father is always correct and that tells me a lot about the two individuals themselves. But the fact that John McClendon was taught the game, and he talked about how Dr. James Naismith told him that he didn't necessarily, well, I shouldn't say necessary. he did not like the way the game was being played, stagnant, without movement. He said the game was to be played with movement. He designed the game to be up and down, which in a lot of ways was the, Many of the characteristics of games played at historically black college, particularly after um, John McClendon got involved and did that with the North Carolina College for Negroes, now North Carolina Central, in 1941. He was actually famous for what we know now as the secret game that was played between, now we refer to as North Carolina Central and Duke. Duke. It was North Carolina College for Negroes, as we said. And this secret game was played in silence. They came in, and he wanted to play this game. The game was played with Duke, but it was Duke players. Remember, this is wartime. So you had a lot of people that are training for the war, both African-American and European-American, black and whites, um, that were training for the war. So a lot of Duke people were off. So they used much of Duke as a medical training facility. So a lot of ex-Duke players came back to Duke and were training and getting their medical degrees so they could be of service during the war. So this game was played between ex-Duke players and these were players that literally had just left Duke a couple of years ago and Duke had um, won national championships, played at a very high level, very well regarded, much of the way what we see today. 
And as that story would go, is there was a YMCA, and people know the history of YMCA, if you would. There was the Negro YMCA or the Colored YMCA, Black YMCA, uh, which was the Christian organization that shifted in a lot of ways that was governing to uh, Christianize African Americans, if you would. But more important than that was the fact that they gave them an outlet for athletic activity and health awareness. And so at the Y was one of the few places where you did see um, the interchange between African-Americans and European-Americans, black and white, and I say that purposely, uh, provide a level of equality, if you would, is that, as you know, this was segregated, segregated South, Jim Crow, which was deadly serious in terms of not seeing that. So he wanted to play this game. He wanted to give his players a sense of wealth, and he always thought that was important. So it was a conversation about just how good Duke was. And one of the players from North Carolina, new guys, uh, is quoted as saying, and you can watch this if you watch uh, Black Magic. It's told in that video. My students actually are, are watching that now. That's why it's so ingrained in my memory is the fact that he told them, you may be good. But you're not the best because you ain't beat the best. And that, in a lot of ways, was the impetus to the game because what was seen as the best was the North Carolina College for Negroes, now North Carolina Central. So they played the game, and they actually beat up on the Duke and blew them out. First, the game was kind of close. They were scared, and they opened up, and they had skins, and they really got into it. Then they just started playing the game. In a lot of ways, this war was the interaction that you see in the North and later came to the South that, began this desegregation, what I call now assimilation, not integration, because it wasn't a movement from blacks in white spaces and whites in white spaces to black spaces. It was just a one-way movement. But to get back with John McClendon, is that was the first framework of him. He left North Carolina Central after winning a CIAA championship. He actually started the CIAA uh, championship tournament, which was one of the earliest tournaments across the country. The SIC started the tournament earlier, but the CIAA has become famous for their tournament. Just a couple of years ago, the CIAA was the third and fourth, ranked as the third, fourth largest tournaments at any level. It's a Division II conference, if you would, versus Division I. But if you just put them all together, they had the largest uh, third or fourth ranked in terms of attendance and popularity, to let you know. He was the incubator of that tournament and grew it. And it's actually his team upset West Virginia State and Lloyd that became the first African-American. Earl Lloyd. Earl Lloyd that recently passed. And I was at the CIAA when they announced it. And you could hear a hush over the tournament. Something that I've never saw in my life. How a, a group of people fell silent of hearing that noise, news that just you let you know how many people were impacted by Earl Lloyd and the fact that he was the first African-American to be drafted and play in the NBA. Well, he actually played that team, and Lloyd's team was uh, supposed to win the tournament. He said he had never seen anything like the way those players played for North Carolina. And they were called basically the runts. They were small players. They were big. But he also had another team that won that had – a seven-foot guy and a small guy. So he could play in various styles, up-tempo, and he'd run the floor. Uh, things that we see characterized in basketball today, up-tempo. He played that. 
So then he went on to the Hampton Institute. Only stayed there basically a year. He didn't feel the support. He did not want to stay any place that he didn't think it was support. He really didn't get the support for the president, so he left there. 1955-59, he played at Tennessee A&I, now Tennessee State, where he won the three championships. And remember, he won the championships, as we talk about, uh, during that time there, 56-57. This was just recently after the NAIA desegregated, right, mm-hmm. in 52, and they had the national tournament, and it became a – Famous district called District 29. He was impetus about that, desegregating the NIA. He tried to do the NCAA. NCAA didn't have it. Uh, they wasn't ready for it, which is, as I talked about earlier, in a lot of ways, crazy when we think of what's taking place today. True. But he desegregated District 29, and what they decided to do is they put all the HBCUs in one district. And the winner of that district, of HBCUs, and these were some of the greatest conferences that still stand today. They all played in that. You had members of the SIAC, members of the CIAA, members of the SWAC, and there's a conference now that has since ceased to exist in the late 60s called the Midwestern Athletic Association. And you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Teams such as Tennessee State, mm-hmm. Central State. Mm-hmm. Early pioneers. Central State won NIA national championship, just like Tennessee State. Kentucky State, which actually had a coach that trained under uh, Coach McClendon that became the second team in the NIA to win three straight games. Kentucky State, they were in a member of that conference. Texas Southern, before they joined the SWAC, mm-hmm. 52 was a member of that conference. Just to let you know how deep it was. Jackson State, Jackson State College at that time. Grambling State College at that time. They were members of that conference. This was a loaded conference now. And so That's a it, lot of talent. Yeah. So you talk about these teams that are coming together, but they had to play in this conference. And you imagine how tough they were to get out of this conference. They actually played, oddly enough, in Nashville, Tennessee, as the story would be told. And at that time you had segregated high schools and we know the history of Wheatley right back in the backyard of Houston. They went up and played their tournament and finished third under the legendary coach at Wheatley that everybody talked about. They won the first desegregated uh, UIL uh, game coming out of the PVL leagues, which was the desegregated teams when they finally coached. Yes, Briggs, who actually is a Tuskegee graduate at HBCU. So you can see all this lumping together, and that's why I'm elonging this story, and I'll, I'll shorten it up uh, because of time. But I think it's important to go through this because everybody doesn't get to, to see that. And then he moved on from Tennessee after he made the changes, uh, desegregated the NIA after having to go through it and play for it. The first time they won the tournament in 52, they, were, they said they were going to desegregate and wasn't prepared to do it. In 53, they finally did and you had the opening door, and finally they dissolved the District 29, and he went back to the traditional districts, and the door was blown wide open. And because of the NIA, NIA was coming popular, the NCA said, all right, we have to desegregate. And they opened the doors. But as the story was told, and this is one thing that I'm working on, writing a historic so the listeners get a high uh, insight into this, is the fact, unfortunately, when the NCA decided to desegregate, um, they were not prepared for the large institution of what we, I would refer to now as the more well-branded institutions, state institutions, and in some of the larger private institutions were not prepared for this. And so the NCA, as they decided to let black colleges in, they separated it, though. They still created a distance. It wasn't just open. And I think that's important that we take that note. 
There was then what you call a university division and a college division. So it was still the separation. They said they would open the doors, but it wasn't fully ajar. It would be what we know now as Division One and Division Two. And so every time HBCUs looked to take the step in a collective group, individually, African Americans started moving and they could play for these large institutions. But in terms of a collective group, of an institution, there was always this separation. And so even from Division Two, when they decided and say, no, we want to be Division One, we want to see if we can play. And this is before the money proliferated uh, the state schools, so there was still even talent. And you see that based on those that went from pros from black colleges and played, whether it's in the NFL or the NBA, and how they led many teams to championships at that level. Whereas, whether it's Adels, Al Adels, the coach of the team that previous first coach African American to win the championship, if you would. Golden State. Golden State, in terms of what he did. Or the legendary Knicks. Red House. Uh, winning a championship uh, with the uh, Grammar State legend. Uh, getting it done Willis Reed Willis Reed So those are some things That just are part of this history And he touched on All these players now. He, he touched on it. He he was the reason That HBCUs In a lot of ways Were proud of what They were doing basketball And much of the face Of HBCU athletics Is focused on football But the greatest success If you look at championships Is inarguably Basketball And maybe slightly After that track Well he went on And uh, coached professionally First African-American coach of professional team, 1961-62, Cleveland Pipers. Oddly enough, the story that goes there, Steinbrenner, the famous owner of the Yankees, before he took ownership of the Yankees, actually owned Cleveland Pipers. That's the level of people he touched with, and the story would end um, acrimoniously there in terms of Stromberg was starting to show his framework of what he thought. He traded a player in the middle of the game. Uh, which uh, did not sit well with McClendon, and he actually tendered his resignation with that. When he went back to coach at HBCU, Kentucky State 64-66, and set up that team that won three championships in the 70s as his predecessor took over the program. And then he wasn't finished yet. Became the first African-American in 1967 to coach a Division I historically white college, Cleveland State. He did that from 67-69 and did pretty well there. And then he came back again and coached Denver Rockets, which would become our own San Diego and Houston Rockets. So we have a tie right there in our backyard in 1969. So, again, legendary basketball Hall of Fame, rest in peace, um, dual time, inducted in 1979 as a contributor and finally gets his day as being inducted as a coach in 2016. And I'm excited and proud and honored uh, to know that he touched me, and I'm sure he touched a lot of people and didn't even realize it, but that's what you call a true legend. College Basketball Hall of Fame as well, inducted in 2006. So that's the history that I like to share, and hopefully I added some knowledge to those that may not be as where and why you had so many people banging on the door that John McClendon should be in the Hall of Fame, not only as a contributor, uh, but as a coach because of what he did for the game. Thank you, Doc. And real, real quick, Wildcat, touch on Zelmo Beatty, who played at the Purview A&M, for those who do not know. So we have all kinds of ties here with this class, 2016. Average 25 points, 
20 rebounds in, at, in his time at PV. Let me say that again. 25 points and 20 rebounds per game his throughout his college career. One more time, let me say that again from a man at Reagan, kind of slow at numbers. 25 <laughs> points and 20 rebounds per game throughout his time at Prairie View A&M. And, you know, it's interesting. You and I had uh, a chance to talk to uh, – you uh, just lost Mr. Sam Ovadian in 2013. Yeah. So that's not uh, very long ago. Mr. Uh, Mr. Manning, father of Danny Manning, Ed Manning, and he would just tell us stories about <laughs> Del Zemo and watching, you know, and playing. He's, he's another one of those players, uh, Doc, that uh, called a timeout <laughs> in the middle of a game and said, hey, <laughs> and he said, the timeout was, was long, but it wasn't, but it was kind of short, too. So Zemo just basically. Blasted in the air about it right quick. Got it back out of the floor. <laughs> Another one of those situations where Coach said, who called the timeout? <laughs> Zelmo did. You know, and he phenomenal his body. Zelmo screamed out. Oh, man, you got you got to think about this. And, you know, just, During this time frame, Prairie View went and won an NA championship. Yes. 6-2 when he was there. Willis Reed won it the last year for Gramlin. And then you had the legendary uh, uh, Southern player that played with the Chicago Bulls. Um, that had the Bob Butter Bob, Bob Butterbean. Butter mm-hmm. Yep, Butter Love Love Bob Butterbean. Yeah, yep. And they that, were all playing in the swag and playing at the same time to let you know the caliber of talent on this team. You know, it's it, when we have events and all that come along, and every year somebody from that era gets into the Hall of Fame. A lot of history is brought up. That's unknown to most of the the, the uh, players that's coming through, and I'm not talking about the professional player. I'm talking about on the college and high school level that have no clue that thought all along because they've grown up in an era where there's always been a crossover. You know, they've never been in an isolated situation, so they don't know exactly how to deal with that when that environment comes up and they go to a campus of an HBCU just as a student not just as as a ball player because you kind of like adapt but as a student you know it's it's, it's just interesting I have one other thing to uh, let me add this before you go in and let you close because I want you to close that on that but he actually played on Otis Taylor was on the team now, you know, you, it takes takes our mentor to talk about that that guy that and he roomed with Latin David Latin now, it really takes our mentor to talk about that. No, I'm talking. He ruled with Roland Latin, Roland which Latin. was the yeah, like I said, brother of David, David Latin. Latin. Like I said, it really takes. That. So you're talking about the greatness in this <laughs> this area. That's a lot. Talk, it's that's, a lot. That's a lot. The connections that are there, in terms of it, it's fascinating. Go ahead. I just had to throw that in. One one thing, um, the NABC, the National Association of Basketball Co- uh, Coaches, College Coaches. Met this week also and had their inductees for the uh, 2016 class. Uh, as coaches, it was Hugh Durham and Mike Montgomery. Players were Mark Aguirre from DePaul, Bob Boozer from Kansas State, Doug Collins from Illinois State, Lionel Simmons from LaSalle, the L train, and Dominique Wilkins from Georgia. It was, it was, a, it was a good night because also a local uh, coach, uh, that had, that local guy that had coached here in Houston, Tom Billiter, formerly of Rice at Augustana, and this was his second Coach of the Year award. He also had won at uh, one of the uh, Dakota schools before because he had also won a national championship. Out of that staff that Scott Thompson put together when he first came to Rice, Scott Billiter, Gray Giovanni, 
Willis Wilson, all three of those guys are now or have been at one point a head coach moving on from Rice. It's interesting when you look at how they got, uh, that group came together and basically turned that program around and put them back in the, on the map. Very true. And I am, as I say, done for the day. And no, you're not. No, no, because we're going to talk real quick on what we saw oh. Monday night. Uh, you're talking about the four points that finished the first half and then the six points that finished the, the game and almost was a question mark as to too soon to be celebrating? No. It wasn't too soon to be celebrating. You talking about North Carolina celebrating too soon? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I said. I was celebrating what? They celebrated the big man good overtime? I don't know what to celebrate because all the game, all that shot did was tie the game up. So it wasn't worthy celebration right there. It was a hell of a shot by Marcus Payne, double pump to tie the game at 74. Yeah, but but they needed that, though. But they needed was, that. It was, you know, 4.7 seconds left. And then Chris Jenkins, who, bless his parents' heart, spells his name the correct way, K-R-I-S. Like I do, KG. So you don't got to get some love for my man Chris Jenkins. It's a lover. Really? Really? Game winning three point shot right there because Chris is spelled with a K, our unique men. So let's just get that straight right there. So, right. so kudos, a great play. Yeah, great play by uh, Villanova head coach Jay Wright. And you can also go to my uh, blog and read game summary of the sensational game winning shot that uh, Chris Jenkins made to give Villanova the, the championship. And I have uh, on at my blog post a um, little re- replay or or video of the game-winning shot, the championship-winning shot. But I love this Chris Jenkins quote: "I think every shot is going in." Matter <laughs> is what he said after the game. So every shot I shot today, I thought was going in. So that one was no different. So it was a great inbound to Arch Ryan Arch Diacono. I saying that last name. And he just dribbled up, cross half court, passed back to Chris Jenkins. Chris Jenkins launched about a 28-footer. And it went in, and NRD Stadium and 74,000 folks went bonkers. And <laughs> it was it was a great win. And 77-74 for a, a non-Power 5 school. And as Doc would touch on, he, he was happy. He was happy because a it Power 5 did not get school there. did not win championship. Yes. And that school being North Carolina, who is waiting for the NTA to announce the punishment for the academic scandal that North Carolina was involved in for, what, 20 years almost or whatever. So uh, we're still waiting for that, even though everything broke last year. So we're still waiting for the announcement of the punishment, which probably be a slap on the wrist or end up being more punishment for the women's basketball program than the men's basketball program in North Carolina. But I digress. So That's a good point, too. But – Kudos to them and give the the uh, all final four team. Got three players from Nova and two from Carolina: Phil Booth and Josh Hart from Villanova, Joel Berry, the second Carolina, Bryce Johnson from Carolina, and most outstanding player Ryan Archdiacono from Villanova. It was great final game after two blowouts on Saturday. Wow! Nova beat Oklahoma by 44 points, and the Tar Heels beating Syracuse by 17 points. So those two semifinal games weren't exactly thrillers. And then you on the women's side, semifinal games weren't thrillers either as uh, Syracuse beat Washington, I think, by 21 and Connecticut beat Oregon State by 29. So both winners scored 80 points in their games and they're going to face off in the, oh, about two hours as we do this podcast, seeing if Syracuse can shock the world 
and uh, head coach Quentin Hildeman pick up his first championship. He's the second African-American head coach, male head coach, to reach the Final Four. He, if he wins, he'll be the first one to win a championship. It's going to be a lot of three-pointers flying in this ballgame. We'll see how Connecticut defends the threes, and we'll see how Connecticut handles Syracuse's I think this is 40 minutes of pressure. Keep, keep part to watching this game. Exactly. That is the three-point line. How's defended and how well they shoot the three. And it's going to go a long way to decide this contest. Syracuse is going to shoot at least 33s in this game. <coughs> That's what they do. They, they jack them up and hope they fall. But they will force you how to get to force you in tur- turnovers, speed you up, to get you to play at their pace, and get yourselves out of what you like to do. So we'll see because UConn is methodical. They will beat you down with defense, beat you down with half-court offense, beat you when transition if you make mistakes. If you make mistakes, they will punish you and capitalize on those mistakes. But we'll see how they handle Syracuse's 40 minutes of pressure defense. And I'm looking at post-play, rebounding, how quickly they get to, uh, not allowing second chances. Um, also being able to, once if UConn is not scoring, not allowing Syracuse to get into a, a uh to a scoring run, and Chris, you and I have, have seen it happen quite a few times when UConn is not scoring, that defense picks up, and it forces you to not into situations to not being able to score or get uh, second chance shots, and also you're not going to the free throw line. And let let me say this: I'll speak this. I'll speak for the all three of us. Our last, our previous podcast, we touched on. We said that we expected all four number one seeds to reach the women's final four. Yeah. We were wrong three times because there are three new teams yeah. in the final four with Connecticut. Absolutely. Syracuse, Washington, and Oregon State. Each of those teams upset number one seeds on their road to the final four in Indianapolis. So that's good for women's college basketball. It's good to see some fresh blood in there, but we'll see if these teams can come back next year or come back within these next five years because it's still UConn and everybody else. UConn is still the ratings uh, leader in terms of eyeballs on ESPN. And I'm, and here's, this is a legitimate, truthful statement from Coach Oriema. Let me see if I can pull it up here real quick because it's, it's honest. And, it's, and it's, you know, it makes sense. He was asked if, if uh, people, if what women's college basketball needs to uh, continue to grow. And he says, you know, you got to have teams. One difference is 20 years ago, the All-Americans went to five schools, basically. Yep. Now they go to 25 or 30 schools. So the talent is spread out more. So that 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 is helping make the game better overall. But you still need that team to beat, that queen of the mountain that people either want to see win or people want to see get beat. And that's what UConn is. That's why people, the, the rating numbers pale in comparison to women's you know tournament, to the male men's tournament. But the folks who do tune in to, to uh, ESPN's broadcast. Yeah. They want to see a train wreck. For t- t- one or two reasons. They want to see UConn win, or they want to see if somebody will knock UConn off the mountain. They want to see the train wreck, one way or the other. So that's that, that's where they we are in women's college basketball. Um Earlier, a few days ago, U of H, I think it was on Sunday afternoon, U of H had the official dedication of the Gavi Lewis Basketball Development Center. 
I was there for that. It went well. Jim Nance. I enjoyed it. CBS announcer, CBS analyst, and a extremely proud University of Houston alum spoke at the uh, event. And even there's even a picture. I think Mark Berman took a picture of him. Fox Sports, Mark Berman took a picture of Jim Nance. Hold up the U of A three fingers during uh, before the Monday night championship game started. So Nance, like I said, is a proud, very proud U of H alum, as I am on a much smaller scale, less famous scale than Mr. Nance is. But I can aspire to be at his level in, in my chosen field of Houston Round Bar View in covering basketball. On our podcast available on SoundCloud, iTunes. You can check us out on our Facebook page at KG, Fifth Ward Wildcat, and Doc Facebook page. Wildcat, how can folks find you on the social media platform, sir? I will, as I close this out, two other names I need to mention because of what they brought to the uh, NABC, what they were honored for. Guardians of the Game Award leadership was presented to Ben Braun, formerly of Rice University, and Cal University, Berkeley, Cal Berkeley. Uh, ben started a education foundation program, uh, academic foundation at Cal that has, up to this point, has brought in over a million dollars in foundation money to the athletic department that has spread it, uh, spread it out uh, to help kids further their education and help them with uh, with placement uh, after graduation. The other uh, Guardians of the Game Award service was presented to Greg and Peggy Nibbit of Presbyterian Presbyterian College. They have fostered, adopted 48 kids up to this point, and they've all had a enlightenment. And it didn't matter whether the kid was a uh, uh, kid with needs or a kid from whatever situation. They all they they helped them along the way. You can go to the nabc.org website and you can find the information, background information, on all the winners on, uh, that were of the awards and the presenta- uh, presentations to all these uh, worthy coaches that were presented this week. And give a listen, and read, and contribute. You can find. Jerry Lee Woodley Jr., J.L. Woodley 1, Facebook, Twitter, AKSVDCSR, The College Sports Report, Report at SoundCloud, YouTube, TweetDeck. And I think that's the... the oh, and, and uh, 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 Blogger. Blogspot. I had to. Had to I, Doc, gotta we do. So, we we, we got to get. You get, get we get so many, but but you say you, you get rolling and you kind of. So really, what you're saying? People can find your information. Oh yeah, I'm 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 out there. I'm out there. Um, and thank you for your support. Um, yeah. We, and, and truly, we we we, we 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 definitely thank you. And yes, uh, I do still have a couple of more T-shirts, but they are the. Medium uh, and one large. I have three mediums and one large left. Uh, so if you want one for your kid or uh, a baby, what T-shirt? Uh, the 
KG, Fifth Ward Wildcat, and Doc Podcast T-shirts. They are in white. The first batch. Yes. A few more things. Want to uh, acknowledge and congratulate De'Aaron Fox for being the 2016 winner of the Gavi Lewis Award, which goes to the top boys high school basketball player in the greater Houston area. Uh, De'Aaron. That was nice, too. It was a nice uh, banquet that uh, my colleagues put together. And thank you, gentlemen, for, for attending that. I appreciate it. Wildcat, thank you for doing their video work. And, and you get those videos, I believe, are available on, on your, oh, your yes. blog as well. And, and like I said in the uh, uh, introduction, I went to an award banquet and a history lesson bro- broke out. Yeah. Truly. And that was outstanding. And I hope the uh, young people, the players, and their relatives and parents appreciated the story and the history that was told about uh, life uh, 50 years ago, basically, when Gavi Lewis integrated U of H and just how life in the South yes. Yes. was for Don Cheney and Elvin Hayes when they came to the University of Houston, what they were used to in Louisiana and how things were different when they got to U of H. So it was an excellent uh, turnout and event, and we'll have that was a fifth uh, annual Guy Villalobos Award, and we're working on our sixth for uh, 2017. So thank you, as always, for that. Predictions, Connecticut, Syracuse, who wins? I'm going to go and stick with what I, I, I've stayed, uh, what I started with at the beginning of the season. I'm going to stay with UConn. I'm going to stay with UConn. Uh, I think they just have too much. Uh, would love to see another close game I've seen last week and let the uh, let it fall where it may. Um, there's a side of me that wants UConn to win again because it's be a nine power five program that would want that would win. <laughs> like you 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 want that bad, don't you? <laughs> yeah. And then I must admit, though, I like you know I would love to see the African American yeah. to Syracuse become the first African American to win a Division One national championship. Uh, on as a man, so I'm split, but uh, I have to call it like I see it professionally, and I believe it's gonna be UConn. I agree, I'm split as well, but <laughs> I'm gonna pick UConn to win the 11th championship four uh, in a row. That's be four in a row, first time in NCAA Division One history for that to happen. Where that'd be uh, Brianna Stewart, Morgan Tuck, and Mariah Jefferson would uh, enter. Freshman as champion elite. and leave as seniors as champions. That'd very be the first time that wow. that yeah. that that, is, that will happen. So and that's I hope the game is competitive. That's what I hope more than anything is that it's competitive. But it be it's great that UConn will win because UConn is still a member of the same conference as the University of Houston. Yes, so it'll be good for the American Athletic Conference. Yep. to have another champion. So hopefully we'll. Um, Did they have a good any freshmen on that that didn't play Brianna? That no. Uh, when kids come in at UConn, it is one of the one of the it is one of those programs. When kids come in, there's no red shirt unless there's a medical hardship. Other than that, you're playing. Just curious, anybody has well, a chance, they, 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 chance to win five? No, no. <laughs> put that out there. And, yeah. and one last thing, very quick. I put a, I made a blog post of this a few days ago about uh, the myth. Trying to dispel a myth about UConn. Do you know gets all the All Americans? He gets all the McDonald's All-Americans. Yeah, I'm glad you put that out there. Uh, he had six this year on the team. Notre Dame has seven. Notre Dame is not playing this national championship game this year, tonight, as we are in Indianapolis. We're ready to go watch the game at the Banker Fieldhouse, whatever it's called. Um, Banker's so, life. I didn't want to say all of it because they're not paying us. Really? So if you're not sponsoring us, I'd watch it to give you credit yeah. for the whole thing. Yeah. 
So, uh, True. but UConn has, you know, in fact, one of the McDonald's All-Americans transferred to Southern Cal. In 2013, UConn right. didn't get any McDonald's All-Americans. So it does happen. Mm. Mm. So just keep that in mind. 2016, the game just completed a few days ago. Only have one. So it's not like UConn gets five, mm. six, seven McDonald's All-Americans every year. That is not true. <laughs> when they get them, they just get the right ones that work That's for right. their system and maximize what they do in Connecticut. Thank you, as always, gentlemen, for your time, your knowledge, and your insight. Listeners, thank you very much for your support. Mm. I'm going to wrap it up, as I always do. In conclusion, be true. Be cool and do more.